everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and on this week's show, I had the pleasure of chatting with Fox Sports analyst extraordinaire, Stu Holden. Stu gave some great insight into all sorts of MLS topics, plus he peeled back the curtain a bit on how he analyzes games, which is something that always fascinates me. Before we get to the show, I wanted to take just a second and talk about 361 a video project started by myself, Jack Hazard, and Diana Crump. 361 is a YouTube channel where we reimagine storytelling in the American soccer space. 361's videos combine well-written scripts with illustration and design. Our first ever video on former New York Red Bulls coach Jesse Marsh is out now, and there will be a link to it in the show notes. Now, without further ado, on to my conversation with Stu Holden. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now joined by Stu Holden. Stu, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, everything's uh, good. We're heading into the tail end of the uh, MLS season here, so just you know, actually getting a, a week or so break here before uh, we're back on the air on the 20th, which is uh, which is nice. Well, enjoy that break. I hope you enjoy that time between now and then. On today's show, Stu, I want to take us on a trip around Major League Soccer, looking at a lot of the big picture storylines from across the league, but doing it in a detailed way that gives insight into what's happening on the field for a number of these MLS teams. But before we get into that, I've got a 2020 question to ask you. How strange has this year been for you? How strange has this season been for you? I know for me, it's been strange trying to figure out how to cover the league where there's no games and then a ton of games in the MLS's back tournament. For you, how does, how does doing your job calling games for Fox been in 2020? Yeah, it's 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 been a challenge. Look, I mean, I think it's been a challenge for for people in every facet of life, let alone sports. And uh, you know, during this the quarantine period, uh, I had my second child. Uh, I've been doing, you know, before that, I was I did I think two hundred thousand air miles last year. This year, uh, I haven't traveled since March, which is you know a, a body shock for me in a way. And you know, we're doing all of the MLS games off of tube. I, I think we're in now the fourth part of whatever version of the regular season this is you know the season started then it stopped then it was mls is back and then you know the first part of the season then they just announced the second part of the schedule and uh, i i think you know everybody's trying to do their best and and find their way um in 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 times that are different and you know i'm i'm no different to that my you know my family has has uh, multiplied in a sense uh, I, I'm doing most of my job off of a TV monitor, mostly like you see at home and that you're watching at home, which makes it a little bit more challenging. We do have different views and um, other tools at our disposal. But generally speaking, it's uh, it, it's been difficult, but it's one that, look, I, I'm thankful I have a job. I love what I do. Uh, I'm glad that soccer is back on. Um, I hope that people are staying safe, most and foremost. And, you know, the, the way that Fox have been calling games and the, the protocols in place for Major League Soccer to go on. I think we all realize that that's secondary to to what is still a global pandemic. But at the same time, thankful to have sports back and have something that can kind of break break us away from that at times. You mentioned some tools there that Fox gives you. I've talked about this in the past with Jordan Angeli, my co-host, and Bobby Warshaw. But I want to know for you, when you're prepping to call a game or you're calling a game live, what are you looking for? What are you trying to do from an analysis standpoint? What resources are you using? Can you take us behind the scenes a little bit on your analysis process? Yeah, I mean, my my analysis process is is really um, it, it's evolved over the years. And when I first got into t- TV, uh, I was told by everybody, especially on the production side, that this was 
a job. You had to treat it as such. You had to put in the work. You had to do the research. And I don't think I realized, and probably until a little bit later in my broadcasting career, how important that actually is to to be to putting a good product on the air. And you you can get by with games where you know perhaps you're not as in depth or you, you know you haven't done the same amount of work, but you ultimately feel that and you don't feel as confident when you speak. Uh, you're more reactive as opposed to being able to predict things based on uh, things that you've seen. And so I, I, I take that as a fundamental um, you know, baseline when I come into any game that I do. And then secondly, my, my job is to tell the story of what's happening. You, you know, John Strong, who I typically work with on Major League Soccer broadcast, we say that you know, he's the narrator and I'm the one that's providing context and color. And how can I do that in a way that uh, doesn't talk down to people? It is, it's inviting for people that are new to the game, but still is in depth uh, enough for people that have followed the game for a long time and know it at a high level. How, how can you speak to both of those audience members at the same time? And um, that that's something that I enjoy. It's, it's uh, you know, when I come into a game, for example, we have all the research packs available via Opta and Major League Soccer and Game Notes and you know, all the kind of standard stuff that you do. But really for me in my position, I feel like the most valuable tool is just watching games. And it's, you know, going back uh, before, let's say it's Columbus against New York. I'll, I'll make sure I watch at least two halves of the team's prior two games. I'll look at the way that they've scored goals, the way that they've conceded goals. I use uh, Instat a lot, which is, I feel like a really great tool to be able to break down you know, the areas of the field in which they've scored, how many headed goals, how many right foot, left foot goals, uh, you know, who's providing all the key passes, things like that, that I make sure when I come into a game, it helps me have a better understanding of how I think the game will play out. And then if it's not playing out in the way that I think, why is that the case? And then telling telling viewers um, why, why that is and based off of what teams are doing either differently or why it's so successful. Transitioning us forward to some actual team-specific MLS topics, the most recent news, probably the biggest most recent news in Major League Soccer is after 10 years, Ben Olsen is now no longer the coach of DC United. And I think it's more than fair to say that Olsen hasn't left them in good shape in terms of their recent results. How does DC move forward from here? How do they establish some sort of on-field identity? Uh, You know, DC's, it's a fascinating uh, team to me. And, and, you're not going to. I saw an optist that I think on Twitter uh, earlier today was that Ben Olsen as a player and as a coach has been involved in or part of 70 percent of D.C. United's games in their history, which is a really, you know, an astounding stat. And it, it just kind of tells you how important he has been to the club's history. He's such a big figure there. And really, if, if we're being honest about it, Ben Olsen probably had a year, a couple years more uh, as a head coach than the results for a, a normal head coach in that situation would have gotten. I mean, this team beyond the Lucharu run a couple years ago, uh, when, when the team was so exciting and Rooney was scoring and uh, Luciano Costa was scoring and the team was the top, near the top of the Eastern Conference. And, you know, they fell short in the playoffs, but it was a fun team to watch. And, and Ben in moments has shown that he can be a really good coach. He can motivate guys and get the guys together and set them up in a way they can be successful. But this is a team uh, that in, in when I look around clubs in Major League Soccer, don't really have an identity of, of who they want to be. You know, when they went out and got Wayne Rooney, it was kind of a shock to, to all of Major League Soccer. And it, it coincided with moving into the new stadium and they, they wanted to go out and get a signing that fit that. Well, they had the success that followed. But then since that point, haven't invested in anywhere near the same type of fashion. They've missed the mark on a couple signings as well. And I think as a club, they really need to hit the reset button 
from a philosophy standpoint of just who, who do they want to be? Do they want to develop some young talent, which is getting an opportunity right now? Do they want to be New York Red Bulls-esque in that way or and Philadelphia Union? Or do they want to be big spenders within the league? I, I think it's somewhere in the middle there. I, I think they're kind of a middle-of-the-pack club. When I think of the top-tier clubs in MLS now, I think of LAFC, Atlanta United, uh, Toronto FC, Seattle Sounders, Portland Timbers. And then probably falling into that second category are the you know, Columbus Crews and uh, New York City FCs, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's about D.C. United really reestablishing who they are again. I'd like to see them get adventurous with their new coach signing and, and, and make an investment on the field that, that makes them relevant within the league again, because right now they're not. Mentioning coaches there, continuing along that trend, Gerhard Struber was recently announced as the new head coach of the New York Red Bulls coming over from Barnsley in the championship from what you've heard of him or from what you know about him or what you've read, what are your impressions of Struber and how do you think he'll fit in New York and how do you think that team's going to play? Yeah, well, we know how they're going to play. It's it's going to be the same way that the Rebels <laughs> always play. Uh, you know, high press, high intensity, uh, look to turn the ball over uh, in the attacking third and then look to, you know, capitalize on those opportunities. I, I, I actually didn't know a lot about Gerhard Struber before his name was linked with the Red Bulls job. Uh, so I did some research and looked and, and watched some of his performances from the Barnsley team that he coached. And, you know, they play kind of a 4-4-2 diamonds and they press through the middle the same way that the Red Bulls do. The wingers play in tight. You could call it a 4-2-2-2 at times. Uh, you know, very flexible. He's a coach that has a history within the Red Bull system. So I, I think for them, when they put together their their recruiting profile, he checks a lot of those boxes. He's a guy that understands the Red Bull way. He's a guy that has, uh, you know, been in that system. He's a guy that's had some, you know, success with a team that was a low budget, underachieving group. He kept them up last season, although they haven't been great this year. And um, I think they feel that there's enough continuity there and enough familiarity that they can bring him into Red Bull New York, and he's going to be a success. My my biggest question for the Red Bulls is again, much like DC, what you know, who do you want to be on the field? Do you, do you feel, you know, we talked to Kevin Thelwell the other day, head of uh, their head of sport, and uh, this was ahead of the game on Fox, and you know, he he feels that you don't have to spend uh, money in Major League Soccer to be successful. I I disagree, and actually, the uh, the results of right, if you look at the MLS Cup winners between Toronto FC, Seattle Sounders, Toronto Seattle Sounders. Uh, you know, going all the way back in Atlanta United, these are teams that spend money. These are teams that invest heavily in their squad and their coaching staff. Yes, they have, uh, you know, mixed in some homegrown players and academy players, et cetera. But, you know, for, for the Red Bulls to, to get that all elusive MLS Cup, that first one in their history, I think they are going to have to go out and spend some money. It doesn't mean you need eight, nine million, fifteen million dollar players like Atlanta United, but how about a couple in the you know, four, five, six range. You look at a guy like Kaku that they went and spent some money on. He's been a big difference maker for them over the past couple seasons, but it's not enough for them to be to to achieve that next level. There's been some debate about this on past episodes of MLS Assists, and I've changed my opinion about three times already. But for you, Stu, what is Brendan Aronson's best position? Is he a ten, an eight, <laughs> or a winger? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I, I think it's one of the the beauties of of, of Brendan Aronson as a player, and I don't think that that type of player needs to be typecasted as a you know as a ten or as an eight. Or but you, you look at the modern game and you look at some of the systems that are being played these days, whether it's four three three or four two three one. If he's that number ten position, you know, a, a lot of these players and a lot of these coaches have systems that are flexible. So so all these positions are flexible, and I. 
you know, a 10 is not a 10 that's going to stay in the middle of the field. A, t- a 10 is a guy now that is going to make that final pass and, and wants to be on the ball. So where does he find that? Does he, you know, is he between the lines? Is he coming in off the touchline at times? Is he starting wide, starting inside and swapping with his winger? So, you know, I watch Aronson play and I, I see him popping up on the right. I see him on the left. He had a great assist the other night to Bedoya. Um, you know, he had a couple killer passes in the uh, MLS's back tournament. He, He's a player to me, the important part to me. I, I don't care if he's a 10, an 8, a 6, a 7, a 11, whatever it is, is that he's producing uh, the last pass and he's putting the finishes away too. And it, it, that was the next step of his game, I felt like, for him to either break into the national team as a regular or to be successful in Europe, you have to be able to add the goals and assists beyond you know, just having an impact in the buildup. And uh, I've seen that from him. And I think uh, in going to Red Bull Salzburg, you're going to see him playing – uh, both of those positions. So he's not just going to play uh, wide for Jesse Marsh. You'll see him playing inside as well. And, you, you know, you play to your player's strengths and a guy like that, they can still press and they can still defend and still understand his role within the team. You give him some flexibility in the final third. I want to press you a little bit more on Aronson's areas that he needs to work on. As someone who spent plenty of time in central midfield, what does he need to take that next step with? You talked about him playing the final pass, and that has developed in his game. But looking as he heads over to Salzburg reportedly, and it looks like it's going to happen, what does he need to do and what does he need to either keep doing or work on to make sure that he is successful in Austria? Yeah, I mean, as you continue to step up higher levels in your career, you know, things for Brendan Aronson that he probably won't get an opportunity to do until he's over in Europe and he's in Salzburg and he's playing in the champions league that, you know, well, it's not hopefully Salzburg make it to that, that, that as, as I know they're in the group stages, but to the point where he's playing and, and has an, has a key role to play, um, you know, for, for a guy like it's, it's going to be speed of play and, you know, how quickly can he think? I, I remember when I first got to England in the Premier League and had played at a high level with the Dynamo, but then also with the national team. My first week of training in Bolton, I, I was remember thinking, oh my goodness, you know, every guy here is either an international or an incredibly high level player. It wasn't one to, you know, seven or eight, like you might see on an MLS roster back then. It was one to 23. And, uh, you know, these were guys that, uh, you know, forced you to think quickly and, and, you know, what you lack for either in physical or speed, you know, and th- those types of things on the technical side, can you be quicker in the way that you think? And from Brendan Aronson, I think that's going to be the next level of his game, whether it's back to goal, taking that first touch out of pressure, taking that second touch under pressure, but st- still being able to maintain possession. And then I, I will continue to say final products. You know, he, he's a guy I think his goal is an assist right now. I might be wrong just off the top of my head, but I think it's like four goals, four assists in, in Major League Soccer play. You know, I, I want to see him getting to the six and ten range and, you know, being in the conversations with the Pozuelos and, you know, guys like that that have come to this league and really produced at a high level uh, in those positions. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking a little bit higher up the field, but sticking with young Americans. For you, who's the better striker prospect, Daryl DK or Ayo Akinola? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think I'd like uh, Akinola there because... Uh, DK is is really physically strong and smart in the way that he uses his body. Uh, he's also uh, he's he's clever in the way that he is able to hold the ball up. I think he takes really good positions um, off of the center backs and uses his his strength uh, to to lay the ball off. His his passing is good. So you know those are really good areas of his game that that I like. I, I think his movement. Uh, in and around the box can be better. And I, I think as he can start to be more influential in front of goal. And again, we talk about strikers, they're judged on their goals ultimately. And for, for DK, he had a real drought for, I know he scored uh, in the last game that we did at least um, where he played in. But before that he'd had, I think six or seven games without a goal. And, and that's, 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 you know, that's typical of a younger striker. But when I look at Akinola, I see a guy that has real pace. I see a guy that has real strength. Uh, I see a guy that has a good touch in front of goal. I see a guy that is hungry, that is motivated, that um, can score different types of goals uh, with with his technical abilities. And so when I'm thinking about a guy who's got the higher ceiling, I would say that uh, I would be investing in Akinola's stock over DK's. The Montreal Impact recently traded for 21-year-old American forward Mason Toy from Minnesota United. This is sort of a two-part question here for you, Stu. First of all, what is Thierry Henry's Montreal Impact team? And, and second, is Henry going to make something out of Mason Toy? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, Henry's Impact are... Uh, I, I, I don't know what to make of them. You know, I, I'm being completely honest. I, I mean, even in the MLS's back tournament, he... He has some talented players. Uh, I think he recognizes that he's not got the most talented roster in MLS, but at, at times there feels like an overthinking and overcoaching element to the way that, you know, they set up and whether it's, you know, a formation to from game to game changing, um, you know, trying to tweak things. And I get that he's trying to find his best roster. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're not a team that I see making any type of run um, in, you know, for MLS cup this year. And, you know, Henri, this will be his first full season in charge. I think we'll we'll know a little bit more by the time the second season comes around and you figure out which, okay, which players are not my guys, which guys can we get in, how can we turn this roster over. And then, you know, for Mason Toy, you, you're not going to get uh, many better mentors in terms of the center forward position than uh, a guy like Henri, and especially Toy, who has some of the same qualities like, like Henri uh, does and, you know, his ability to kind of move outside – the central lanes and get wide and has a really good strike on him as well. But, but a player that to me has stalled over the last couple of years and, and the, the potential, you know, the, the results never quite matched up with the potential that was being talked about with him and the flashes of performances. And everybody will talk about the Mason toy game, the game where he scored two goals against LAFC and they went in there and stunned them. And he was man of the match on the day, unplayable, two spectacular finishes, but yet we don't see that often enough. I, I think he still has work to do in that position as far as learning the number nine position and the nuances and, you know, being able to move off of center backs and have more of an impact on the game and not just being a guy that's just going to take six touches and score two goals. So that, that's that's what I'm curious to see from Mason Toy. If he can really continue to develop and 
you know, be a potentially a player for the U.S. Uh, under 23 team come the Olympics next year. As a forward, playing for one of the greatest forwards of all time sounds like a scary thing and a really cool opportunity at the same time. If you're Mason Toy, are you stoked about that or are you terrified? Oh, you better be stoked. Uh, if you're if you're terrified, what are you doing in this game? You know, <laughs> it's, I get that there's probably an element of, you know, this is my hero. But I, I don't know if it is, but I would imagine any striker growing up over the past you know, 15 years would have had Terry Henry of their list of guys that they would have wanted to emulate the type of career he had and the type of player he was. I mean, he was so much fun to watch and uh, so unique in that aspect. But if if you're Mason Toy and you don't view this as anything other than a lifeline, an incredible opportunity to learn from one of the game's best strikers, picking his brain, working with him in training, uh, all the little ways in which you could refine your game to become a top-level striker, then... I can tell you one thing for sure right now. He won't make it any further than he is. If he sees this as a real opportunity and learns, he can really grow and flourish into a striker that I think I've seen tools from that could, you know, could score 10 to 15 goals easy in this league a season. You mentioned that LAFC game where Toy scored two goals on LAFC a couple of seasons ago or last season. Why have LAFC been so bad defending in their own half for large stretches of the last couple of years? What is it about the players or about the style of play that makes them so vulnerable when they're back defending in their own half? Yeah, I mean, look at Liverpool right now. Look, you know, at, at times to be able to play this this high-pressure, high-octane offense, you know, in-your-face type defending, um, you know, marking really high positions, man-to-man, man, rest defense, you know, counter-pressing, all that stuff, that the trigger words that you're going to hear from from Bob Bradley or Jurgen Klopp or whoever it might be, there's risk associated with it. I mean, it's part of the risk and the balance that you take that to be able to dominate the game from the front to back and defending with your forwards and putting teams under pressure and creating opportunities in transition, that you have to gamble a little. I, I, I feel for LAFC in the past year, year and a half, Losing a guy like Walker Zimmerman, um, you know, losing solid MLS veterans like Stephen Badisher, and I know Harvey was starting regularly last season, but you know, guys that you just kind of you know are going to give you a seven to an eight every single game of the week, and you know, you might not get the tens, but you're not going to get the twos and threes, and you're not going to get the number of mistakes that you do, and you're going to get guys that often make the right decisions. Now, I think Segura is a good defender. I think Yakovic has had trouble at times back there. I think with injuries and trades and, you know, uh, Palacios coming in at left back, uh, I'm still not convinced by him. They haven't been able to figure out a goalkeeper. So, the, you know, there's a number of different things there. And throw in the fact that it's 2020, you're playing two games in a week, you're coming off of MLS's back tournament, and then, you know, you're not playing in, in front of your home fans and you don't have the confidence and you don't have all the rest of it. I actually think LAFC are going to be fine. They showed some signs of late, again, that they've kind of figured some of that stuff out at the back. And it's still a team, I don't care how many goals that they've conceded, and yes, you can figure out you know, ways to score against them. It's not a team that you're going to want to play in the playoffs. So I'm, I'm not sounding the alarm bells, and I still think that LAFC will make a pretty deep run in the Western Conference this year. You mentioned the term rest defense there, and I've, I've heard that around Bob Bradley, and I've also heard it called offensive marking can you explain what Bob Bradley uses that for, what that idea is? Yeah, I mean, the, the ba- in a basic layman's terms, it's, it's can you take the best position defensively uptight against an offensive player in an aggressive position while your team has the ball or, you know, is, is deep in another team's end 
to where then when you lose the ball, you've been resting while you're still defending, you're taking an active position. But then when your team loses the ball and it comes time to try and win it back, you're in the best possible position to make the shortest run to, to close down the ball and win back possession. So you often see, you know, say for example, LAFC have the ball deep in Vancouver's end and they're working the ball around. You're going to see their center backs, whether it's Yakovic or Segura or, uh, their their fullbacks as well pushing on to offensive players on the other team. So you'll see them up against uh, Cavallini, or you'll see them up against what would have been a Jordi Reda before he got traded, etc. And you know, seeing guys like that really tight, you know, two to three yards, almost being able to put your hands on the other player, and then as soon as the ball is turned over, can you squeeze the gap? Can you pressure the game? Can you can you make the field as small as possible to where the opposing team doesn't have any space? to play out of that and, and, and take it up the field. And and that's where part of the risk comes, but also you can see why the rest defense in, in, in those moments is so effective because you, you're, you're actively getting tight to the offensive players while your team still has the ball. So then when it does turn over and you're expecting to turn it over that you can win it back as quickly as possible. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Moving to another team in or just outside of L.A., I saw you tweet about Guillermo Barceloto recently, wondering if he was going to make it through the season. Jordan and I talked about it last week. Matt Doyle wrote a column about it recently. When you watch the Galaxy, what do you see that's contributing to the poor results that they've had this season? How long do we have? <laughs> um, you know, I, I during the MLS's back tournament, I covered the Galaxy a lot. I, I saw a team that lacked ideas in the final third. Uh, I saw a team that lacked quality through the middle of the field when Jonathan DeSantos is not on the field for them. Uh, I saw a team that was lacking confidence. Uh, and, and then I saw a team that, that didn't have a presence up front. Uh, you know, Chicharito, we have not seen the best version of him. Ethan Zubak is a guy that is a young player. He's going to run around. He's going to give you 150%, but he's not a guy that's going to score 10, 15 goals in this league, not even close. Um, and then a team that over the last year and a half in covering the Galaxy uh, with Guillermo Barscoloto, a team that lacks an identity on the field. Yeah. And then actually so much so that Dennis DeCosa, their general manager came out the other day when they were talking about this and signing players and, you know, ahead of the season and talking about the pressures on the galaxy as a club said that we, we felt like we were lacking an identity. And this was them coming off a, I think a run right out of the gates uh, when MLS started back up again, where they, I think they went five unbeaten. They beat LAFC twice and everything was starting to look rosy again. But since that time, they've re- reverted back to the norm. They've reverted back to the team that I thought they were. They've reverted back to a team that I think has scored only two or three goals in their last six games. They have, uh, they're have they winless in those six games. They got smacked by uh, Portland 6-3 to three at home. Uh, it's a team defensively that are a total shambles, that concede soft goals, miscommunication, goalkeeper errors, center back errors, you name it, just being beaten one for 1v1. And, and to me, those, those types of mistakes, uh, there's a lack of quality uh, across the board for the Galaxy right now when you compare it to the better teams in the Western Conference. There's a lack of ideas. There's a lack of execution. And I asked the question because I, I fully, if, if this continues and the Galaxy don't make the playoffs, which I think it would be uh, 
what have they got eight, eight games left, something like that. There's still a chance that they could do it. If they don't make the playoffs, I don't see any way in which you can keep uh, Guillermo Barrascoloto uh, beyond this season. And the Galaxy have to start taking yet another uh, serious inward look at uh, where, where they're standing right now as a club. Why was Guillermo Barrascoloto brought in in the first place? I mean, if you go back and watch film from his time coaching in Argentina, you see a lot of the same things, at least when the Galaxy have the ball. You see a general lack of creativity. You see more reliance on individual aspects of the game. Did the Galaxy expect this to be something that was unlike his, his prior coaching appearances? It's, it's hard to say. And, and I, I'm speaking from experience and being, you know, a, a part owner of a club in Mallorca, Spain. And, you know, when you're, when you're looking at uh, recruiting coaches, you know, Guillermo Sparscolota, when, when you're making a profile for a coach, he, he checks a lot of the boxes. He's a guy who's won an MLS Cup as a player in Major League Soccer with the Columbus crew. He's a guy that knows the league. He's a guy that um, has had some success as a coach down in Argentina. He's coached one of the biggest clubs there, so you know how he knows how to deal with pressure. Um, you know how he, know, he knows how to deal with some big stars, uh, egos, managing all the rest of it. And, and I think is a guy that would have checked a lot of boxes and um, you know perhaps flattered to deceive. Uh, I, I'm not saying that just because Guillermo Barascoloto is not going to succeed with the Galaxy as it stands that he's, ultimate, he's instantly a bad coach uh, because – you know, th- there's those coaches out there that, that aren't X's and O's guys, that are motivators, that, that, that can get the most out of the players that they have and can fit their pieces together to make a beautiful puzzle. And every, that's the beauty of coaching. Every coach does it differently. I just think for what the Galaxy needed right now, it's easy to say in hindsight. And when you look at what their team now needs now, it, it's clearly not what's what's happening um, with the coaching on the field from uh, from Guillermo Barrascoloto and his staff, and that's what you have to start to to reevaluate if you're the Galaxy and say, you know what, we, we might have made a mistake here. This might not be the right fit, and if it's not the right fit, and if it's not uh, if they if they don't feel that it was the coach, then they have to look at their recruitment because then that comes down to a lot deeper issue than just being the coach. Because now this is a couple coaches in a row that have not had success with LA. It's you know, going back to Ziggy Schmidt, Kurt Analfo, uh, Guillermo Barrascoloto now. So, you know, there's been a long list since Bruce Arena that have come in there and failed. Moving up to Northern California, the San Jose Earthquakes have lost some games in epic fashion this season. But I've been curious about why it's taken teams so long to really figure out what the Earthquakes are doing with their man marking. I mean, why haven't teams been dropping four, five, six goals on San Jose since Almeida took over? Do you think that falls more on the coaching staff for lack of preparation for their players? Or is that more on the players for maybe losing their heads a little bit once they start getting man marked in games? Well, I, I think when when you're, you know, man, man marking the way that the, the system they play is, is very um, unconventional when it comes to uh, styles around the world in, in professional soccer. You often see that, you know, in the at the beginning of your soccer career. And it's it's a high intensity, high demand. I mean, some of my least favorite drills as a player in, in, co- in practice were where it was like, hey, stay with your man no matter what. And you're accountable for that guy. If that guy beats you, the goal's on you. It's not on anybody else. And I think, again, when we talk about high risk, it's a high risk um, situation. But also, I've seen it at its best, where you know you have a guy like Jutsen in the midfield who can just run for days and just closes down spaces and oftentimes picks his guy pocket and they have a three v one opportunity and they score a goal. But then you see games like the San, uh, San Jose against the Seattle Sounders, where Jordan Morris just skips inside, glides past three defenders. And then nobody knows what to do once he's just running down the field, whether they should stay with their man or they should try and tackle him. And that's, in effect, that system at its worst. And 
I think where the earthquakes have had problems this season is not just because of the system alone. I think it's that they try to tweak the system based on individual games and teams that they're playing against. And when that doesn't go right and when you get it really wrong, it goes really, really wrong. And that's when the team starts conceding seven, six, five. You know, there was a period there where I think they conceded 20 goals over four games, which is absolutely bonkers. And, uh, you know, I, I know I saw many people out there saying that that shouldn't, um, you know, at a point, if it was an American coach, he might have been out of there and they might not be wrong. But um, the Quakes at times, I, again, as of late, they've they've gotten some results. They've jumped back above the playoff line and all is rosy for the time being. Uh, I, I don't think that that style is sustainable uh, against good teams. And I think in the playoffs, I, I don't see the Earthquakes if they make it going going any further than, say, one game uh, in the Western Conference. One thing I like to do on this show, and this is where we'll end it today because you've already been more than generous with your time, Stu. One thing I like to do on this show is pretend that Jordan, my co-host, is the head coach of a particular MLS team, and I like to have her try to fix one of their tactical problems. So I want to do something a little bit similar here, if you'll indulge me. Let's say that you're the head coach of another MLS team that's on a collision course with the Seattle Sounders in the playoffs. How do you, in that situation, try to stop Brian Schmetzer's Sounders and their trusty 4231 because they're pretty much just as good this year as they've ever been. Yeah, it's that's a great question. I, I I'm sure there's uh, you know, what 20 24 25 MLS coaches out there that would wish they had the answer against this team because the Sounders um <clears throat> are incredibly efficient and disciplined and you know, the, beyond the tactical element because I I think that they're a team that is very solid defensively and and that's kind of the foundation of of who they are. And it's, you know, when Brad Smith's back in the team over no, New Who and they have Leardom and they have, you know, either Svensson or, or you know, Ariaga and Yaimar, whoever, whoever it is in the back. You know, it's a solid back line. Your midfield is as solid as it gets between um, João Paulo and Roldan and Svensson and, you know, just guys that are really hardworking team. And then up front you have difference makers, you know, Rui Diaz, Ladero. Um, two of the best playmakers in this league. And then Jordan Morris, who's, you know, arguably having an MLS uh, MVP type season. So how do you stop that? Well, uh, I, I look at teams that have beaten them before. Uh, I think you have to have a similar type of uh, foundation to them and that you have to be very solid defensively. I would probably set my team up man for man, four, two, three, one. Uh, I would make sure that my, you know, my, my center backs are aware of Rui Diaz and, and making sure that, you know, they're either playing a high line against him or uh, when when Ladero does not have the ball and has no pressure on it. And then, you know, making sure that my, my two center mids are, are, you know, mostly just stay at home. I, I think I'd be more conservative against the Sounders and, and look to really just kind of grind it out against them and, and have players, if I had, depending on which squad you're giving me, to, to try and beat them. But you know, a team that's unpredictable in the final third, a team that's good in transition and a team, um, you know, that, that if, if you give me a team like Toronto, I, I think we could give the Sounders a pretty good run for their money there. <laughs> Stu, when you get tired of broadcasting, we'll make sure to hire you out as an opposition analyst. Sound good? Let's do it. Let's do <laughs> it, man. I mean, it, it is just lastly, I mean, it, it is kind of what we do as analysts. I mean, I remember pre- prepping for the World Cup. You're, you're studying teams you're studying patterns you're studying studying uh, styles of play and you know I, I remember comparing it with a friend of mine who was a video analyst for Miami and you know he was he, he was uh, I said hey can you look at this and send me over kind of what you guys do and he sent me over an opposition scouting report and it's set pieces and it's 
you know, it, it's difference makers and their key tendencies and all these different things that, that are part of the game. But then the unpredictable part is when you actually get on the field, it's the execution. And that's when it comes down to the players and the coaches game plan, uh, really kind of, uh, merging together and, and forming this perfect marriage. It's, it's a really fascinating part of the game and one that I enjoy to be able to analyze and not actually have to coach. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for being our MLS guru this week. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll be back again next week.